0: me again can uh christina will you come up here i'm just kidding will you turn off the lights seriously <clears throat> since you're closest like i ain't kidding like turn them off all every one of them I, i'm gonna we're gonna start with a video and for you guys that are ladies or guys that aren't sports fans sorry about the video oh nah, come on anyway we're gonna start with a video And it has a point and a purpose. To quote Rich Mullins, there is such a thing as glory, isn't there? You turn our lights back on, Christina. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2. I don't know why they had to show that Doug Flutie thing, by the way. John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with Me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever He tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. God, we approach your word not as the words of a man, but as the very words of God. May that humble us and may that make us cry out in desperation. God, please, reveal this to us by the power of Your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. want to recap where we've been in John so far and that epic prologue that John gives us in John chapter 1. talks about the Word becoming flesh and how He dwelt among us. We looked at the witness of John. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who wrote the book, but John the Baptist who made no mistake that he was not the Christ, but that he was the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. To the point that He's standing by the river one day and points up and sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, He's the one that I've been telling you about. God reminded me, John said, that when I saw the Spirit alight on somebody like a dove and remain there, that's the guy. And I saw it, that's him. And then another day, he sees him walking again. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Two of his very own disciples go after him. After Jesus, I mean. One of those disciples goes and finds his brother and says, we found the Messiah. His brother comes back. What we talked about last week, Jesus says, you are Simon, you will be Cephas. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found a man named Philip and he said, follow me. Philip finds Nathaniel and says to him, we found the Messiah. We found him of whom Moses speaks in the Law and the Prophets. And he's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel comes and says... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus says, "You're an Israelite whom there is no guile." And he says, "How do you know me?" He says, "Before I saw you, uh, before I saw you just now, I saw you underneath the fig tree." Nathaniel goes, "Rabbi, you're the Son of God." Jesus is like, "Really? That's all it takes is for me to say that I saw you before I saw you." And that brings us to where we are now. John is crafting for us a gospel, a story of good news about who Jesus is. And he brings us now to a place where he starts to recount a story, but not a fictional story. Please be clear about this. This is not some cleverly devised tale that John is embellishing. We'll see later that John says, I saw these things with my own eyes. I saw it myself. And it's important that we realize that because it plays into exactly what we're going to look at today. So what we're going to do is we're just going to work systematically through a couple verses at a time, explain them what it means, and then we're going to find some application out of that. Um, So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, just quick historical background on Cana. Cana was a small town to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Some say, they haven't really said this is the site. Some say four and a half miles north of uh, Nazareth. Some say about nine miles north of Nazareth. Don't know that that's really that important. Um, but it was a small place, a small, almost like a coal camp. I mean, something I love about Appalachia is that our topography, our culture is a whole lot like biblical times. We haven't left two thousand years ago. <laughs> we're still here um, but I mean, you're talking about a small coal camp type village, just a small place, several families, maybe maybe a couple hundred people, maybe not even that big, so that just that's where they're at. But now, what I want you to know about this is weddings in those days were really big deals, and when I say really big deal, I mean like. Ed Sullivan, really, really, really big deal, okay? Usually, the whole village was uh, invited, and the catch here was the groom's family was responsible to throw a party for the wedding, and that party usually lasted about a week, a, a week, okay? And it was the groom's family's responsibility to make sure that this party was good, Make sure that the festivities were festive. Make sure that the drinks were drinkable. Make sure that everybody had a good time. And you say, okay, well, that's neat. But listen, seriously, it was so serious that if the party didn't meet people's expectations, the family would be publicly shamed for hosting a poor party and they could even bring legal action against the family. Public disgrace and legal trouble for not throwing a good party for the wedding. Seriously. Isn't that crazy? To me, that's crazy. But I want you to get a hold of that because that sets the stage for what's going on here. Okay? Now, it says that the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. What I said at the beginning, we don't know exactly who or how many disciples He had at this point, but we do know the two disciples of John who were probably John and Andrew, probably. Andrew found Simon and then Philip and Nathaniel are mentioned. So here we know there are are at least four or five of his new disciples following this new rabbi that people don't really know about. Okay, John's proclaiming him. Everybody else is kind of like some poor guy from Nazareth, don't care about him. But he's starting to develop a following. And he's got a bunch of poor fishermen following him. Big deal, right? Now, it's odd to me that John, in his gospel, never calls Mary by her name. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. He never says Mary, the mother of Jesus. He just says the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. Um, just something odd I wanted to point out there. But with Mary and Jesus being there, it could have been part of their family. It didn't necessarily have to be so. But the fact that they were both invited shows that there's some sort of connection there. I'll go to verse 3. We're just building a case here. Nothing flashy or dramatic here right now. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So let's dig in here a little bit. Remember, if the family failed to provide a good time, they could be in big trouble. So when the, when, when the wine runs out, it is potentially time to panic. Now, Mary may have been responsible for being part of this party planning. Otherwise, why would she come? Now, it could have been relatives and she's concerned about them. But this is it's an issue. It, it's important to me that she's the one who brings up this issue. Now, again, may not be that she was an organizer here, but it really does seem to appear that way. Now, why would she approach Jesus with this question or with this point, with this statement? Why would the mother of Jesus walk up to him at a wedding party and say, they have no wine? It's a desperate statement for the family. She's making a a plea, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus, they're out of wine but why him? Why would she approach him? If she's part of this planning team, or she's one of the wedding planners here, one of the organizers, she's trying to make something happen. She's trying to look around, grasping straws maybe, but she, of all people, knew Jesus' divine roots, didn't she? She knew where he came from. Okay, She remembers and had treasured up in her heart his miraculous birth, the angels. So now she comes to him looking at those roots and says, you know what? I bet you could do something about this. Will you? Will you? Now watch His reply. And this is pretty important. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Mama, I'll do what I can. Mama, I love you and I'll do anything for you. What Scripture say? And Jesus said to her, Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let me just say something. If my son starts to refer to my wife as woman, we're gonna have a problem. Better yet, he's gonna have a problem. <laughs> I'm not gonna have a bit of a problem. So now let let's look at this. He calls her woman. What in the world? Now there's a few commentators who say that this is not him talking down to her, but they're really in the minority. Um, and again, if you read wide on this, you'll have just a few people say, oh, it's not a big deal. But the most polite thing that this word woman could have meant was ma'am. That's the most polite thing it could have meant. But I don't really think that's what it means. Why do I think that? It's definitely not on par with the common courtesy of calling somebody mom or mother. Now, sometimes we can use mo- mother. Anybody ever take that tone with their mom- mother? <clears throat> His calling her woman is a turning point in his relationship with her. He has moved from her authority into the realm of public ministry. And here, he serves his heavenly father, not his earthly mother. And that's a huge shift for Jesus. Now, Jesus, it says he grew up and he was obedient and he grew in in favor with God and man, he grew in wisdom and stature. He was obedient to his parents. Now Joseph is out of the picture here. We don't see him. After Jesus is 12 and in the temple, we don't see Jesus again. We assume that he died um, because hanging on the cross, Jesus looks at the apostle John and says, your mother, woman, your son. So he kind of commits Mary into John's care. So we assume that Joseph has died. Uh, again, we don't know that. Uh, church history don't shout that out to us, but the silence of Scripture seems to point to the fact that there's no Joseph here, and that Jesus was kind of used to taking care of her. He comes up to, she comes up to him, and says, "They're out of wine, woman. What's this got to do with me?" We'll talk about more about that later. It's further pointed out, or further explained, in the next part of his phrase. Now check this out. He says, "Woman." What does this have to do with me? Now, this is an interesting phrase. Your your version might say something different. It's a Hebrew idiom which is literally translated, what to me and to you. So, woman, what to me and to you? John Piper says in his message on this passage, which I highly commend to you. You can look it up on his website. Right, let me find where I was at. John Piper says in his message on this passage that the only other times that this phrase appears in the New Testament, it is used by demons talking to Jesus. Okay, five, five other times. I'm, I don't have them written down here. I should have written them down. It's used by demons talking to Jesus about why He is torturing them before their time. Let me read you what Piper says. That phrase, and it's ti imoi kai soy is used five other times in the New Testament, and every time it is spoken by a demon to Jesus. When Jesus intrudes in their domain and starts to exert power where they are in control, they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? That's Matthew eight twenty-nine. The gist of this phrase seems to be, I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. That's what the demons are saying to Jesus. And Jesus uses that same phrase here to Mary. So Jesus is doubly abrupt with his mother. He calls her woman and he says, this is not your place to be calling out my power. It does, it does seem that his mother expected him to do something. We're not told what she expected, but we are told that Jesus did not approve of what she said. Now that's the end of the quote from John Piper. To me, it infers that this was not Jesus' matter to get involved in. She was basically asking Him to work a miracle, it would seem, and He's saying, I'm not getting involved in this the way you're asking me to. This is not my problem, and I'm not going to fix it by exerting my deity in front of everybody. Again, this is me. I may be reading into this, but this is what I'm seeing out of this. The next part of the statement shows this a little clearer. He says, My hour has not yet come. And again, that phrase, my hour, is pretty big. What hour was He talking about? My hour. It's the hour of His fully glorifying His Father. How? By laying His life down. In John 12, 27-34... He kind of he, he tells us exactly what his hour is. Let me read that, John 12:27 through 34. "Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, "An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, "The voice, this voice has come for your sake, not mine." Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So his hour had come and he said, When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Which he's saying, my hour is when I'm crucified. He says to Mary, here though, in our passage, my hour has not yet come. It's not time to put my glory, which is the Father's glory, on full display here. That will come later, but it will involve a cross, not a miracle. It'll involve death, not magic tricks. It'll involve the wrath of God, not the wine of mirth and festivities. Not here, not now. Her response? I love it. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She didn't say, boy, you call me woman, we're gonna wrestle. She says, she says, no. You do what he says. Which is her way, I think, of putting herself under his authority. Of her recognizing, okay, he can do whatever he wants to do. I'm not his boss. I'm not gonna infringe upon his glory. You guys, do what he says to do. I think she gets it. Here, she commands the servants again, which is a little further proof that she had some kind of part in planning and organizing here, but she gets it. This is not up to me. He's in control. Listen to him. Obey him. Now, let's look at the miracle itself. We're going to read 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Stop a second. 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Let's put this in perspective. There were six of them and they each held 20 or 30 gallons. Now, do the math. Let's average them at 25 gallons. Okay, 20 or 30 gallons. Six times 25, anybody? 150 gallons. Anybody ever been anywhere where there's 150 gallons of wine? That's a lot of wine, people. A lot. A lot of wine. Now, What were these pots used for? They were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, what's that mean? You're like, okay. Basically, the Jews believed that when they had been out in the world, in the market among the Gentiles, that they were defiled and dirty. These pots housed water that they could wash themselves and their utensils with to make them clean from these defilements. They believed the outside had to be clean, and that would make them clean in the eyes of God. Now, Jesus would later blast this idea when He said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So the Jews were looking to wash away defilement by cleaning their hands, cleaning their feet, because their feet are what came in contact with the dirt, their utensils, and they used these pots to wash their hands, their feet, their stuff so that they could be clean in their mind. Now, the fact that Jesus used these pots to put wine in would make the normal Jewish person want to swallow their teeth. Okay? You can't drink from these filthy pots. This is where all the dirt and the junk goes. We get it off of our body and it goes into here. That's where all the Gentile dirt is. I think Jesus must have taken a little pleasure in this. I can see just a wry smile and shaking his head as he walked away, just thinking they would croak if they knew that they were drinking out of these dirty pots. And again, is it right to read that emotion into Jesus? Yes, it is. Because I just, I, he was smart enough to know that they had, they would have hated this. Okay? Now, what was Jesus' part in this miracle? What did he do? Did he stand over the pots? Oh, blessed father! I thank you for 150 gallons of water. Now will you show yourself strong and turn this into wine so that these people may make merry for the rest of the week and that this family may not be brought into legal action and disgraced in the eyes of the community. God, show yourself strong. No. No. His part was he gave two verbal commands. Those commands were fill the jars with water and now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Boom. Miracle. Fill them up. Now take some to that guy. Boom. Miracle. You get that? No grandstanding, no parading, no trumpeting. Why? Jesus didn't really seem to particularly like performing signs and miracles. Now, He did them, and He enjoyed setting people free, but there were times like the Pharisees would challenge Him and say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. His response? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's Matthew 12. Scripture also says that when Jesus was being tried before his crucifixion that Herod was excited to see Jesus because he was hoping to see a sign performed by him. But Jesus attitude about this is pretty clear in John 4:48 when he says, "Unless you people see signs and wonders you will never believe." Exclamation point. It's like he had a disdain for, "Really? Is this what you want? You want something magic? You want some big show?" Now again, it's not that He didn't do wonderful miracles in attesting signs, but it was not flashy and or in a showboating manner. Here it's like He quietly does something amazing and then fades into the background. The head waiter, the guests, the bride, the groom, nobody but the servants and the disciples knew what had just happened. More about that when we get to the application at the end. Now quickly, let me just point out, this was really good wine. Okay? Well, I'm not talking like Reuniti on ice, so nice. I'm not talking about the stuff in the box that they sell at Walmart. This is not that wine, okay? The head waiter chides the groom saying, why did you keep the good stuff till the end? That's backwards. Get them tipsy with the good stuff, then break out the Boone's Farm. That's how things normally go here. And you people that laugh know what Boone's Farm is, and that's I've, I've got you pointed out. So, This wine did have alcoholic content. There was alcohol in this wine. Okay, It had the ability to intoxicate the people who drank it. Now there's a ton of implication here as far as sin and is God the source of temptation or evil? We're not going to hit that today. It's a great discussion, by the way. It's a great thing to think about. The Bible is clear, though, that we are not to be drunk with wine. Okay, That's plain. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That's Proverbs 20, verse 1. While nowhere outside of a Nazarite vow does the Bible prohibit alcohol, it does caution us strongly about it. Enjoy your glass of wine, your bottle of beer, but be awfully, awfully careful. Now, side note, I'm a teetotaler. Okay? I do not drink alcohol. Do not, and there's there's a lot of reasons I don't. Would love to talk to you about that later if you want to talk about it. That's not what we're doing today. Now, let's move on to the last verse. And it's a powder keg. This last verse has exploded for me since I've been studying this. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, That's pretty innocuous, you may think. First of all, this was Jesus' first sign that he performed. Now, there there are apocryphal stories about the boy Jesus turning a clay pigeon into a real pigeon. And there's all kinds of stories about uh, things that Jesus did when he was little and people are like, oh, he's a magic guy. They're not true. Okay, let me just tell you, they're not true. They're not biblical. They're not inspired. The biblical passage says this was the first sign that he performed. That's important. You say, well, I ain't heard those apocryphal stories. Well, don't read them. You don't need to read them because they're not true. They make for good fiction, but they're not true. Okay. This verse disputes these non inspired stories. This was Jesus' first public sign. Now, there were two stated outcomes from this sign. First of all, it says that Jesus manifested his glory, and the second thing is his disciples believed in him. Glory is an oft repeated word and concept in John's writings. What is glory? Anybody? Like yeah right like I'm gonna answer that. The Greek rendering is actually ho doxa or literally the glory. Jesus manifested His the glory there. The definition for it reads: glory is an opinion or judgment, a view. It's an estimate whether good or bad concerning someone. In the New Testament always a good opinion concerning one, resulting in praise and honor. So, to bring it down and make it as palatable and digestible as we can, glory is a right understanding of something or someone. That's what glory is. A few Wednesdays ago, we were sitting here and we were talking about glory and we were back there and Scott and Susie were sitting beside each other and there happened to be a guitar sitting beside them. And I said, Scott, Can you play guitar? He said, no. I said, pick it up and play it. So he picked it up and it sounded something like this. Didn't it, Scott? Yeah. It it, it was not very pretty. But now Scott had said that he couldn't play the guitar. Then I said, hand it to Susie. Susie, can you play guitar? Yes. Play us something. And she strummed and it was pretty. And the point was... We didn't see the glory of that guitar when it was in Scott's hands, did we? No, but we did see the glory of it when it was in Susie's hands. There was a proper understanding of what that instrument was for. It's not an implement of torture like it was when it was in Scott's hand. It was a thing of beauty and elegance and music like it was in Susie's hands. Glory is I understand who this is, what this is, what this is capable of, and I realize that it is worthy of praise. That's glory. The glory. When it says that Jesus manifested His glory, it means that He did something visibly to help properly display who He actually was. And who did it help? It helped his disciples. The passage says that after he manifested his glory, his disciples believed in him. John had called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew had told Simon that they had found the Messiah. These were words and the disciples were right to believe them. But now something better was happening. They were seeing the very glory of God on display in front of their eyes. It wasn't just words and thoughts. It was oh, glory. That man just gave two commands and glory. I think I know better who he is now. I love what John would say later in his first letter, the book of First John, when he says this at the very beginning of the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You think John got a hold of this manifestation thing pretty well? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I saw it. I saw the glory. And it wasn't him elevated on a platform with his hands held up, halo shining from him. It was in two simple commands. And my eyes were open. And I saw him for who he really was. I was there and it was amazing. And I want you to know about it too. So I'll tell you what I've seen. I'll tell you about the glory that was manifested in front of my eyes. John's excitement just boils over, and it should boil over into our lives as well, which leads us to the good work of application. Now, here's where we're going to dig in. It's good to know about where Cana was, how much water was in the pots, what the pots were used for, and all the other stuff we covered. That's good. But if it doesn't lead us to live differently Information is useless. Uh, Hamlet posted on Facebook the other day, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in your fruit salad. right? Okay, That's what we're talking about here. We can know all this stuff, but if it doesn't change the way we live, it's worthless. It's tomatoes in fruit salad. Ugh. I believe we can pull these points of application out Out of what we've just studied, there's three points. Of course there's three points, right? First, first point, there is no earthly relationship that trumps God's will for our life. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus didn't disrespect His mother, but He did make it clear that her will would not be imposed on Him in place of His heavenly Father's will he would be obedient to God and God alone. Her desire to talk him into a miracle would not be tolerated. Now this is tough action, guys. We consider ourselves at Providence Bible Church to be a family-friendly, family-focused church. And that is fantastic. Yes and amen. But listen to what I'm about to say. Everybody got your ears on? Your wife, your husband, your children, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, aunt, uncle, grandfather, grandmother, they are all subservient to the will of God in your life. Jesus makes this abundantly clear when He says in Matthew 10, 34-38, grab a hold of this. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Listen to this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a gut punch, guys. That's tough action. The Scriptures are clear that we are to love and serve our families, honor your father and mother, and other familial commands. But no one on earth, no one on earth is to have first place in your life. That place belongs to God alone. And it is so easy to forge an idol out of our family. I am guilty Guilty as charged. There is nothing in the world I would rather do than be with my wife and kids. Nothing. But God would not have me hold up in my home only loving and serving them. There's a world to love and to serve. There are lost people who must hear the gospel. There are poor and needy people who need reached. There are widows and orphans to care for. And I can do those things with my family for sure, but I can't do them if I'm only focused on my family. Now, I'm going to have to chew on that for a while. Second point of application. Cleaning up the outside was never Jesus' desire. And it's still not. His blatant attack on the purification ritual shows that He was turning the yoke of ritual into the enjoyment of the wine of the kingdom of God. If you are trying to please God by your outward works, Jesus blows that that thought out of the ritualistic cleansing water. His desire is to change you on the inside as He moves in and displaces your wants and desires. Get a hold of this statement. Being born again is a change in our affections. Nothing else. It's not a change in your intentions. It's not a change in your efforts. It is a change in your affections. You start to love what you did not love previously. You start to hate what you did not hate previously what Hamlet talked about with repentance. You were walking down a path where this was desirable to you and then Jesus arrests you and you love Him more than anything else and you turn away from that and go to Him. It is not do better so that God will be pleased with you. It is not try harder and keep the rules so that you can please God. Listen, you will never please God. But Jesus did please God. So our hope and our our joy is in the fact that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ not washing our hands and washing our feet when we get back from the market. Not a better prayer time or more reading the Bible. Those things are right and good but they're never going to earn you favor with God. Never. Ever. Wash your hands all you want you're not going to make yourself clean. Only Jesus can do that. Oh sure, our actions and intentions will change, but not because we tried harder or did better. Don't rely on your religious practices or your intensified efforts to bring you favor with God. Trust in the miracle-working power of Jesus to turn you into what you are intended to be. And finally, the last point of, of... Application number three is glory, glory, glory. Let's go back to our sports montage at the beginning. Six minutes of glory, wasn't it? Woo! People jumping over people and people hammering people and Muhammad Ali letting loose with a flurry and people falling to the mat. Dude's kicking balls and they're turning and that guy doing that crazy thing with his feet with a soccer ball. And we're going, ooh, ah, wow, I remember that. The miracle on ice. And there's glory, glory, glory that we ascribe to people playing games. Now, I'm not... Jumping on sports. I love sports as much as anybody. We see a lot of things that we ascribe glory to. We're quick, we're quick to praise the athlete who can perform amazing feats. The home run, the slam dunk, the Hail Mary, that crazy feet and legs thing that the soccer player did. And we will worship them for it. Won't we? Some of you are like, I don't like sports. I don't, I don't worship those people. Well, there's something that you worship, in there? <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll rejoice about it. We'll mourn over it. And it's not just sports. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a clean house. Maybe it's a compliant child or a raise or a million other things. But we glory in lesser things. When right under our noses, right in our line of sight, God Himself is putting His glory on display. Maybe even in the things we are glorying in, but we're doing it for the wrong reason. What I mean by that is, do you know and appreciate God more when you get that car, when the house is clean, when the child is compliant, and when we get the raise? The blessings God gives are given to manifest His glory to us. The wedding guests got some good wine, but they missed the glory of God. That's tragic. And we are them in so many ways. Jesus is working miracles, but we're so caught up in what we get out of it that we don't realize that He's already on His way out the door headed to Capernaum. We're so enamored with the blessing. We're so enamored with the thing. We're so enamored with the stuff. Jesus has walked out the door and we're going, Oh, I love the stuff. Three days later, where's Jesus? He's in Capernaum. He's been there for a couple days now. While you've been playing with your toys. Don't glory in the blessing. Glory in the one who blessed you with it. Guys, glory is a slippery thing. We see it every day and we miss it. God has put His glory on display in front of our eyes every day and we miss it. I think this account shows us that only the disciples saw this glory. And in the same vein of thought, it led them to believe. And this is God's desire for glory. Check this out. The ma- he manifests His glory so that we will believe. And what happens when we believe? Anybody? He manifests His glory and we believe. Then what happens? God is glorified. Glory. Belief. Glory. Belief. It's like an upward spiral. Let me, let me tie this in with something. Jesus tells Lazarus' and sister Martha something very pertinent to our discussion here at the tomb of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, He says, Didn't I tell you, Martha, that if you believe, you would see the what? Glory of God. So in our passage that we're looking at today, Jesus displays His glory, and they believe. Then He tells Martha later, If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So you see the pattern? Glory leads to believing. Believing leads to glory. It's an endless loop. We talked about basic commands last week, didn't we? Was that here was that Wednesday or Sunday? I think it was Wednesday, maybe. The old I used to write my name on the computer. Line ten was J, line twenty was A, line thirty was S, line forty was O, line fifty was N, and then line sixty was go to ten. Anybody ever remember doing basic programming? All right, three of us. Good. And so, what would happen is, as soon as I hit enter, J A S O N, J O S O N, J O S O N, J O S O N, just all up and down the screen. I'm like, yes, yes, it's a never ending. And unless I hit enter and break this, J A S O N, J O S O N, J O S O N, and I would just, I I would space it out different. It would be like staggered. It would be up and down the screen. I'm like, J A S O N, J O S O N. This is a never ending loop. God displays His glory. We believe. We believe God is glorified. God's glory makes us believe more. We believe in God is glorified more. We believe. We see glory, glory, belief, glory, belief, glory, belief, glory, blah, 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 blah. This is God's desire for us as Christians. So that He might manifest His glory to us and that we might believe in Him which brings Him more glory. Glory leads to believing. Believing leads to glory. It's an endless loop. Glory, believing. Glory, believing. On and on and on and on. So I would ask you, in response to this message, and I would ask myself, are you looking for His glory? In the everyday and the mundane. At your desk on Monday morning. Because let me tell you what, it's there. His glory is there. Are you open to seeing His glory? That's a little trickier, isn't it? Some of us are pretty comfortable where we are in our Christian lives. Some of us really don't want God to blow up the box of our expectations. But I believe when we start to see the glory of God displayed that it is going to do just that. It is going to blow up our expectations of God. We're going to turn around and we're going to look and say, "What wasn't expecting that. I can guarantee you that not one of those disciples standing there that day expected Jesus to turn that water into wine. They weren't sitting there going, I know what He's going to do. I know what He's going to do. He's going to have them fill those pots and it's going to turn into wine. I bet you. John, watch. I bet that's what happened. None of them were thinking that. They're like, oh man, this family's in trouble. They're out of wine. They didn't know what He was going to do. And here we stand 2,000 years later and we say, oh yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. I've heard heard that story. Stop. Take it in. Jesus changed the molecular structure of water and made it into wine by giving two spoken commands to some unsuspecting servants in first century Palestine. And don't yawn and nod off like that's no big deal. It has huge implications for your life and my life. Jesus worked a miracle. It's not some ho-hum doldrum story, oh yeah, Jesus watered a wine. Stop and think about it. If He can do that, and He did, what else can He do? It has huge implications for your life. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He speaks and worlds are born. Oh yeah, yeah, I read that too in the Bible. God said, let there be light and there was light. Yeah, I know that. Do you really? Do you really grasp the enormity and the glory of this God? He commands and stars are born. And Christian... He is in complete control of your life. Oh, okay. Is it lunchtime yet? I can't, for the life of me, grasp the enormity of this God. I can't, for the life of me, see His glory everywhere that it's displayed. But man, I want to. I don't want to just walk up the road to Capernaum and start talking about how good the wedding was. I don't want to sit at lunch today and just talk about the football game yesterday. I don't want to go home and be with my family and lay on the couch and be a vegetable and just act like there's nothing big going on. God is putting His glory on display and He's doing it through who? There is no situation or circumstance of your life that He is unaware of or unconcerned with. Not one. I would ask you to do this in response to what we're talking about. Cry out to God and ask Him to manifest His glory in your life. Ask Him to help you believe. And trust Him to do that. And do not give glory to anyone or anything else. He says plainly, I will not share my glory with another. So as you see it displayed, ascribe to Him the glory that belongs to Him and appropriate that in your mind, in your heart, in your hands, in your feet and say, God, it's all Yours. I rest in You. I trust You. I believe in You. Now let there be more glory in my life. This is not a parable about a wedding. This is not a parable about wine. This is a parable about the glory of God being manifested in the lives of everyday people. All the glory is His and He wants to share it with you so that you can share it with other people. Will we live that way? Let's pray. God, You tell us in Your Word, John tells us that the reason that He recorded these miracles was so that we would believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. God, I pray this morning, right now, that we would have life in the name of Jesus. That we would believe that You would manifest Your glory and that we would believe so that You can manifest more glory so that we might believe, so that You can manifest more glory that we might believe. And God, that we would walk with You to Capernaum excited to see what You're doing there. That we would walk with You to work tomorrow, excited to see what You're going to do there. But God, we confess that we need Your help to do this. Help us to see Your glory, God, by the power of Your Spirit. Apart from You, we can do nothing. So help us, Lord, and be glorified in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name.